And we've come to uh, 1 John, and um, we've entitled the next four weeks, Love Letters from John. In the bulletin, we wrote a little paragraph about it and kind of the way we're uh, being led, so let me read that to you. Love Letters from John. John wants us to take full possession of the life that he so well explained in his gospel. In his gospel. He stresses that we need to let abide in us what we heard from the beginning, that when Jesus came into the world, he was and continues to be the physical, obvious, and personal presentation of God's great love for us. Also, that we can abide with the Son and with the Father and with each other in a deep and rich fellowship. And this is the promise that he has promised us. Zoe life, eternal life here and now. So we're going to be continuing that. Um, we're running just a little bit late on time because of the special thing. So if I give you a chance to stand up and say hi to somebody, can you do it like in two minutes? No. <laughs> no huh? Okay, two minutes to stand up, stretch your legs, and say hi to somebody. Two other quick announcements. Mountain Pregnancy Center is having their annual fall banquet this coming Thursday, the 15th. Are there tables still available? There's maybe seats still available. So this is their um, once a year fall um, fall banquet. So um, if you want to see Noreen or Christine, who's is that somebody helping you? No, just Noreen. Okay, see Noreen afterwards. That would be a good one. And then, a second announcement, a special announcement, is I have four re- four prayer requests for you. John, Mary's dad, and Jack are having their eyes operated on tomorrow, so we'd like to pray for them. And Dr. G has a need that we should be praying for him. Dr. Jacopuzzi uh, has some uh, situation that needs prayer. And a good friend of mine um, who oversees K-Wave and some of the ministries down at Costa Mesa has a kidney failure going on, and he's only 50 years old, and, and so they're struggling with that. So his name is Lance. So Jack, Jack, Dr. Jacopuzzi, and Lance. Okay? Pray for them. Well, we just completed the study of the Gospel of John, and we ended with this last thought before the the postlogue. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life in his name. You know, I looked it up, and the last time we studied the Gospel of John, we spent 53 weeks going through it. We spent a whole year in the Gospel of John just before we started going through the whole Bible. That was the last uh, major book that we had studied. So, John's letters, and then Revelation is coming up. In 2031, John used the term we've become familiar with from Brandon's teachings in, in the Gospel of John, Zoe, or Zoe life, life eternal. Not just in relationship to time, but in relationship to the quality of our life. He's going to add to our understanding of this life in his letters, and that's what's going to take place, and that's why we've called them love letters from John. John at this time had probably left Jerusalem and is now in the area of Ephesus or Asia Minor, what today we call it Turkey. He was ministering in a group of churches there in that area, Ephesus and Smyrna, 
Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laosia. You've probably heard of those before, and you'll probably hear about them again. But that's where he was ministering. He probably left Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple because he doesn't mention it in any of his writings. And probably this is taking place before the great persecution by Domitian in around 85 to 95. So somewhere in between there is where these things have happened. And he, and he writes uh, to, to us, the purpose of his writing in verse 4 is that your joy may be full. But when he writes the book of Revelation, he says... Um, I, I want to breathe your brother and companion in tribulation. So there's a big change and something's gone on in John's life at that, that, at that point. So because the preamble of 1 John, or I mean of the Gospel of John is so important, I'd like to reread it to us. So John chapter 1, the first uh, 18 verses. Because this is the basis of so much of what the, uh, the letter of 1 John is all about. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life that the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace." For the law was given through Moses, and grace through, and grace, and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So John tells us directly why he wrote first this first letter. In verse one, chapter one, verse four, he says, "So that your joy would be full." In chapter two, verse one, "So that you would not sin." And in chapter 5, 13, that you may know that you have Zoe or eternal life. <coughs> and by comparing these two ending thoughts from the Gospel of John and 1 John, we see that there is a complement that takes place. In the Gospel, we, it was written that men might have life. But in the letter, we see that men might know that they have life. In the gospel, it was a divine life was revealed in Christ. And in the letter, that same life can be realized by us. In the gospel, there was a way to life through the incarnate son. But in the letter, the nature of that life can be possessed by men. We're going to see that John continues three themes. God is love, God is light, and God is life. 
knowing that you have learned this, that the important things in life are not things, they're relationships. Haven't we learned that? The things when we thought when we were younger, things were really important for some of you, a new bike, you know, that was really important. And then we had new cars and then we had that first house. And then we had these things that were important to us. But as we've grown and as we've matured, we've discovered that relationship is more important than any of the things that we thought were so important at one time. So let's look at John chapter one and we'll take a read through that and we'll pray and I'll give you some thoughts about it. John, first, first epistle of John, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was from the Father, was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, words from John, words from your heart through John to us. Love letters, how much you love us and how much you want our best. You want us to have life eternal now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we can see that John starts out with the beginning, just like he did in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That predates the in the beginning God created from Genesis 1. And when you stop to think about it, the in the beginning God created is simple in comparison to the profound in the beginning was the Word. Because in that statement... John is saying that God predated and he was preexistent and he always was. And that was so important. He was here from eternity past. The importance of this is he's using the word logos. And we'll see a little bit later of why this is so, so important. But John is also referring to the beginning of the ministry of Christ, what he did from the time of his incarnation, from the time of the beginning of his ministry for those three and a half years, the ministry that was manifested to him. He goes on to make it clear that he and others, the we that's in there, it says we, probably others who were of that first generation, the people who were around with John from that beginning, that they had heard and they had seen with a natural eye. So they saw this and they were telling people, we saw this. It's not something that was told to us. We saw this. 
They looked upon. That means they intensely studied. They paid attention to. They knew exactly what they were doing. And they touched the, the, the logos of life, the God incarnate. One com- commentator says it this way. We deliver nothing by hearsay, nothing by tradition, nothing from conjecture. We have had the fullness, the fullest certainty of all that we write and preach. That's what John is saying. There is no hearsay theory. This is something that's true. I know it's true. And he talks about the word of life, the Zoe, the uh, Logos, which was the same word that he used a lot in John, the first chapter. And we need to look at the importance of this word and look at it in context of the culture of that day. It was a major word of the day for the Greeks. It was their word. It was a word they coined, a word that they had been talking about for hundreds of years. The, the Logos. Today we have words, and I think these words are getting stale, community and organic and different words that we use today. We had words back in the 60s that we used, and those words come and come and go. But the word that was so important for them is the word Logos. But for the Jews, what's interesting is God was often referred to as the Word. And he, they knew that the perfect revealed Word of God told who God was and who Jesus was going to be. But for the Greeks, their philosophers had spoken for centuries of the Logos. And it, here's, here would be a definition of what Logos meant to them. To us, it means the Word. It's another word for Jesus. But here's what it meant to the Greek philosophers. The basis for the organization and the intelligence in the universe, the ultimate reason which controls all things. That is quite a definition that the Greeks had for something we thought of just the word. But let me read it to you again. The basis for the organization and the intelligence in the universe, the ultimate reason or reasoning which controls all things. And that had been developed from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle and all of the others from about 500, 550 B.C. all the way up until that time. So the Greek philosophers were going around and talking about their logos. So John comes on the scene and he writes this letter. And a lot of Greeks now, he's in an area that is habited, habited by Greeks. He's in Asia Minor. He's right across the sea from, from Greece and from Macedonia and where all the Greeks were. He says, you have been talking about and writing about this for centuries. Well, we have heard him. I've seen it. I've studied it. I've touched him. Now let me tell you about the Logos. And John was able to do that. John was able to tell them about something they had been hanging on to for 100 years because the, in the beginning was the Word, was the Logos, and the Logos was God and with God. So why is this so important that he emphasizes some of these things? It's important because he is saying that the eternal God became accessible in a most basic way, a way anyone could relate to. He can be known and revealed himself to us. And that is one of the unique things about us as Christians is we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. John had a personal relationship. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a personal relationship. 
but we have been able to have that same personal relationship over the centuries because of the uniqueness of who Jesus Christ is. That's why it's important. It's important because it improves John's words have the weight of being an eyewitness. I'm not just somebody telling you another story that I heard my mom tell me in Sunday school years ago. I was an eyewitness, John was saying. It's not a myth. It's not a story. It's the truth. He carefully studied the eternal one. He carefully studied the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. He knew what he was speaking about. It's also important because it was defeats the dangerous teaching of one of the false teachings that was creeping into the church known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism can actually be in the church today. We just don't call it that. Gnosticism, it even sounds nasty when you think about it. What is that? But there were two main heretical teachings of the Gnostics. The first one was that Jesus was God, but he was not actually physically man. Kind of a pseudo um, physical phantom, if you will. Not truly a, a man. To that, John says, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I studied him. He was a man. And this thinking had morphed into a belief that the physical and the spiritual were completely separate. Dualism would be another way of saying that. You could be spiritually pure and at the same time physically corrupt. Now, why would that be so important culturally in those days? Because a lot of Greeks, a lot of Gentiles were becoming Christians and they weren't coming from a Hebrew background where there was a law and there was some holiness and there was some structure. They were coming out of a very worldly situation and they were coming to Christ, whether they were coming from Greece or from Rome, they were coming that way. They could, um, let me give you an example, a very practical thing. They could be coming to Christ after having been involved in the prostitutes of the Corinthian city, okay? So they could go out on Saturday night and prostitute themselves and come on Sunday and come to a home fellowship and love the Lord. And the Gnostics would say, that's okay. And when people would, would push them on it, they said, well, how can you do that? Well, we've got a higher calling. We have a higher understanding than you do. If you come with us over to this other house, we'll teach that to you, and then you'll know how to do this. And it was called dualism at that day. So that second main, main teaching was that of a mystic superiority. Uh, some were saying that those who had trouble with this dualism, they preached they were not enlightened at all. So if you didn't have that freedom to go out and be morally corrupt one day and then come into church and be spiritually right the next day, then you were not enlightened and you didn't have the superiority that we have. So in verse 3, John bridges uh, this with the Father of life. He says, That which we have seen and heard and declare to you, that you also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with, his, uh, fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word of life, the Zoe, has been manifested to us, to his hearers. We are being witnesses. It's the truth. Our declaring unto you are his words. And what he's saying is the words that I'm saying to you now are the words that Jesus said of himself. Listen to what Jesus said from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, 
So he has granted the Son to have life in himself. In chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then in chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And every time he said life, it was eternal life. It was the Zoe life. And then in 3b, John brings this home by saying to his readers, let's have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Question. Do you qualify as a reader of 1 John? Were the people that he wrote this letter to readers reading the same words that you're reading? then you probably have the same responsibilities that they had. This is not something that, was, that we're looking at just historically and saying this was a letter written to a bunch of people 2,000 years ago. We've read this first chapter, so we are now readers of this book, just like the people that he originally wrote it to. We're in that same position. They could have the same fellowship with them, that they have with the Father and the Son. It's like they're trying to pass on this special fellowship that they have. This has to be one of the greatest statements in the whole New Testament, that we can have fellowship with God. The use of the emphatic word for fellowship, koinonia, which we're all familiar with, it comes from the word koinias, which means common. means common, having things in common. It's the same word that was used in Acts 2.44. Now, all who believed were together, and they had all things in Corneas, or common. They sold their positions, possessions. They divided them among all as everyone had need. Wow, that sounds pretty good. Now, that's a scary verse when we think about it in the church today. Uh, I'm actually going to ask, um, Frank, if you'll stop anybody from leaving right now, and then Wes, if you can go over on the other side and stop anybody from leaving. See, I'm going to have some papers to pass out to you that you guys give up all your possessions. Uh, you, I have some special um, 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 authorizations and some special documents that will even allow you to transfer your houses over to us right now. And so we're going to do that, and then we will distribute it as we see fit. So that's the kind of thing. That's not at all what's going on in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, a whole bunch of people came to Jerusalem, a million and a half, two million people, for the Passover. And while they were there and they were hanging around for the, for the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out. People were speaking in tongues. They were all hearing the gospel in their, in their words. This great thing was happening. And these people were saying, there, hey, man, I've used up all my vacation money. I don't have any money. And that's what was happening is the church was growing so fast that those people were coming together and they were taking care of each other in love. They weren't just giving up everything so that we could all uh, become a cult and all, everything, you know, do that. So, so um, thanks for being willing, guys, but I noticed you didn't even move. So... <laughs> So the idea of this fellowship, this fellowship with God, this fellowship with each other goes so far beyond anything I have ever imagined. It's hard to grasp. This one has a community of resources and responsibility spared amongst, shared amongst everyone. 
you have God's resources available to you in the eternal life that we have from, uh, from God. We, are, we, are, we have the willingness to share things with each other way beyond, I think, than any of us ever actually realized. It was almost overwhelming to try to think this and grasp it. And I hope some of you thinkers will have been spend time with it this week and try to figure this out and then come back and help me with it because it's, been, uh, it's really been something to think about. When applied to the believers, the hearers of, John, first of John's love letter, and to the Father and to the Son. Think about what's really being said here. The Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and all believers have all things in common. Koinonia. Have all things in common. All the resources of each is at the disposal of the others. Whoa. All the resources of God are at my disposal? Wow. We have those. I have those. You have those. Wait a minute. Let's apply it a little bit here. Can I have grace and mercy like God? I have a hard time. I'm a pretty gracious guy. But there's times when I don't give grace and I have no mercy for people. But I have as a resource, because of my fellowship with God, if I can grasp this, the ability to give the grace of God to somebody who's wronged me or somebody who needs that grace or that mercy. How about forgiveness? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We have a hard time forgiving somebody who doesn't pick their trash can up and leaves it out for the raccoons. Just saying. Um, Haven't you been irritated when you see a trash can knocked over because the person didn't put a lid on it? Okay. Forgiveness. We have the ability to forgive like God the Father and like Jesus did. How about this one? Patience. Patience. Long-suffering. Do you know how long God has waited for some of us to come to Him, to come to a place of surrender? And we run out of patience so quick with our kids or with our spouses. Well, how about just material things? Sharing what we have, being willing to help others like in Acts. That should really be easy. John is saying we can have this koinia fellowship inside of the Zoe life. It's one of the things that we have because of it. Spurgeon said this about this passage. When fellowship is the sweetest, your desire is the strongest that others may have fellowship with you. And when truly your fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, you earnestly wish that the whole Christian brotherhood may share in the blessings with you. Wouldn't you love them just to have the part of koinonia that we have around the dinner tables? We have a great fellowship. And wouldn't we like to share that love with them? But how about sharing the love that we've all experienced with one another in different aspects of of our life and our ministry together? There are times when we have gone out of ourselves to help each other, to minister to one another, and those types of things. Wouldn't it be great if that could just be passed around to the whole Christian world, to the whole brotherhood of Christian brotherhood? Paul speaks about it 
in Ephesians, he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one calling, and one hope of our calling. And then talking about one body, now there is that interdependency that we have with each other. How that no part can function by itself. There is the necessity for the whole body. The eye cannot say, say to the ear, I have no need of you. For then, where would the hearing be? 1 Corinthians 12. So we see that we can have this great fellowship because of the word of life which, uh, God, which John had handled and he is telling us was manifested. And then John t- tells us there in verse 4, These things we write to you that your joy may be full. It echoes the ideas that Jesus had in those last hours of his life, the night before his crucifixion. He wanted the fullness of joy for his disciples. They were facing the cross. They were facing persecution. He knew what was going to be going on. And these are the things he said in chapter 15, 16, and 17 of John. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And in chapter 17, But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy and be fulfilled in them. All that joy is being talked about just before the darkest hours for the disciples and for Jesus himself. In verses 5 to 7, now John tells us the message they heard from Jesus. Not only only eternal life and manifested to us, the Logos, he is the light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus had said, you remember one of those I am statements, I am the light of the world. Speaking to Nicodemus in John, Jesus said, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done uh, in God. So using this contrast of light and darkness, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. John now makes it clear that if there is a breakdown in our relationship with the Lord, it's not in him because in him there is no darkness at all. It's in us. And so many people today want to talk about their truth instead of his truth. His truth is absolute. His truth is right here. We can find his truth. But so many people want to say things like, well, you know, that doesn't work for me. My truth is this, or I've discovered that, or the way I see this is like that. And they make excuses and they make, uh, ex- they make an exchange of the, the truth for his truth. Jesus said he is the truth. The Bible teaches that there, uh, that there is a truth that is greater than all of the feelings that we might have. We might say, well, this is really true, and this is really happening, and this is more culturally, culturally relevant and culturally right. Practicing the truth is a pattern of living in the truth. But it says there, but if we walk in the light, and don't we talk about that as Christian? It means to walk in a generally obedient life that your life is generally obedient to God and to his word 
and that's the way that you're walking. You're not harboring a known sin, and you're not resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do we do that? Do we have known sin in our life? We try to walk through life and we try not to to ruffle that feather or bring that up. John is telling us that to walk in the light is possible. Okay, for those theologians, it probably won't happen until we reach that eternal life or that eternal state. That sinless perfection is is reserved for eternity. None of us are going to be there. Um, quite frankly, I don't see anybody in the room that's made it yet. Okay, so we're 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 working on it, but we all have sin. But our life as Christians is described as a walk. Don't we ask each other, how's your walk? Guys at breakfast on on Thursday mornings, don't I sometimes come over and say, how's your walk with the Lord? Are you still walking with Jesus? That's something that we say to each other. Don't we ask each other, how's your walk? This implies activity. We display our life with action. But the walking for us as Christians should be with continuity and with progress. There should be a flowing with it. John says if we are walking in the light with Jesus, we then have fellowship one with another. Well, that makes sense. We're all here because we're Christians. We're all here because we want to worship him. We want to study his word. So there's a purpose that brings us together, and that's Jesus Christ. So then if we do not have fellowship with one another, then one party or both of the parties are not walking in the light. Isn't that true? If two believers are angry with each other, not talking to each other, kind of upset with each other, somebody's not walking in the light because if you're both walking in the light, you're going to have fellowship one with another. It's just something to think about. Two Christians who are in the right relationship with God will naturally be in the right relationship with each other. So something to think about when the relationships break down between us. Check our relationship with the Lord. See where we're at. In 7b, what a great reminder. Even while walking in the light, we can still sin. Remember, to walk in the light is to, is to be generally obedient in your life without harboring a known sin or resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some of us have a known sin in our life. Some of us are being willfully disobedient to something the Word of God says or something that the Holy Spirit has convicted us of. And we might be struggling with it, but we're still hanging on to it. We're going to see how to take care of that in a a couple verses here. But we can have the the assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, even those that we're harboring. It's in the present tense, so it's continually. There in 7b, it says, when when uh, when when the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, it is a continual cleansing. All we have to do is bring it to him with confession. The blood of Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and even tomorrow's, even the future sins. In verses 8 to 10, it talks about the presence of sin, the confession of sin, 
and the cleansing from sin. And note there in verse 8 and verse 10, this is the second time, second and third time it says, if we say. In other words, Christians were making these bold statements. If we say, I have no sin. If we say um, um, uh, that I have not sinned, uh, back in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship. Well, if you're going to say, I have fellowship with, with the Christians, I have fellowship with God, then there should be a walking in the light. There should be something that takes place. So in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. The Bible says all have sinned. None can say that they are sinless. But you know what? Few people today say, I'm a sinner. You know, yesterday I had a rough day. Man, I really sinned. I'm such a sinner, such a no good rotten sinner. What we say are things like, you know, I'm not perfect. Well, I make mistakes. He knows me, you know. We pass it off, but it's sin. It's sin. Do you know that God's grace and mercy flows through and comes to and is extended to sinners? It's not to those who make mistakes. It's not to those who oops. It's not to those who are continuing to do those things that they know they shouldn't be doing. It's the sinners. It's the, that's, what he, that's, that's where his grace and mercy comes into play. Not to those who say I'm only human or no one's perfect. Or you made me do it. Don't you love that one? You lose your temper. And then you blame the person that you, talk, that you lost it at. And you say, you made me do it. You made me sin. So it's not really a sin. Hogwash. You know, if you lose your temper, that's a sin. You can't, you can't do that, you know. But victory and forgiveness comes from saying, I am a sinner, but I have a Savior who cleanses me from all sin. It's so important for us to realize that all we have to say is in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess means to say the same as, to say the same as, When we confess our sins, we are willing to say and believe the same about our sin that God says about it in his word. If I hate my brother in my heart, I'm a murderer. I'm I'm a sinner. When I confess that sin and I say, God, I hate that person. Forgive me of my sin. What I'm doing is I'm coming along and I'm saying the same thing that his word says to me. Guys, when you take too long on those pages on your web pages, those second, third, and fourth clicks that you shouldn't be clicking on, and you hang around there too long, and the Holy Spirit says, get out of here, this is horrible, you are lusting, you're committing adultery in your heart. When you get to that point, you are coming in agreement with the Word of God, and that's when you say, I am a sinner, and then God will forgive you. He cleanses me from all sin. So to confess means to say the same as. When we confess our sin, he is willing to say, your sins are forgiven. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Because of Jesus' finished work, the righteousness of God should be our friend. We should be willing to run into it. 
it ensures us that we will be forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins. And then in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, if we deny the presence of sin, we are self-deceiving and denying God's word. Yet, though it is always present, there is a remedy. So sin shouldn't be a hindrance to our relationship with God because forgiveness is just saying, I confess my sins to you, Lord, forgive me. That's how simple it is. Spurgeon commented on this passage with these words. This text means just this. Treat God truthfully, and he will treat you truthfully. Make no pretensions before God, but lay bare your soul. Let him see it as it is, and then he will be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Treat God truthfully, and he will treat you truthfully. When George Washington was about 20 years old, he wrote this in his prayer journal. Any of you journal? Any of you have journals where you write down journals? This is what George Washington did. He's a 20-year-old young man. Oh, most glorious God, in Jesus Christ, my merciful and loving Father, I acknowledge and confess my guilt in the weak and imperfect performance of the duties of this day. Sounds like a bedtime prayer. I confess the weak and imperfect performance of the duties of this day. I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins, but so coldly and carelessly that my prayers are becoming my sin and stand in need of pardon. In other words, his prayers have become so weak and so meaningless and so rote that they needed to be pardoned. I have heard thy holy word, but with such deadness of spirit that I have been an unprofitable and unforgetful hearer. And for, I have been an unprofitable and forgetful hearer. So that, O Lord, thou, though I have done thy work, yet it has been so carelessly that I may rather expect a curse than a blessing from you. So he was being gut honest with God in his prayers, that even his prayers weren't right. Even the things that he was looking at in the word of God, he wasn't really paying attention to it. And that can happen to us when we approach the word of God a little bit too casually. We don't realize, you know, we are so blessed with every translation that we have in all different formats, on our smartphones, on our iPads, in our computers. We are so blessed. But we should never get to the place to where we approach the Word of God with such casualness that it's not the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Logos was the word of the day for the Greeks. And John is coming along and saying, this Logos, I declare to you, I've talked to him, I've heard him, I've touched him, I've inspected him, and let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Because based on his death, you can have the forgiveness of sins. And so that's the message of John. That's the love letter that he sent us.